message to the elders. This is from Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 32. The, the plan is that from next week we will be starting a series on 1 Timothy. So that is the first letter of the Apostle Paul to his young apprentice, Timothy. It is known as a pastoral letter because he's pastoring a church, a young church at the city of Ephesus. So it is no surprise that the the letter to Timothy, the first one, the second one, and the letter to Titus is really to the church, to the leaders and to the people who are part of the church. So what is it to be a church? And in preparation for that, as a lead up to that, we will have a look at this passage in the book of Acts. Now, we will not focus on the story of how Paul planted the church. That was quite a dramatic event, quite dramatic, the circumstances with people, you know, they brought their magic books and they had a big bonfire. Uh, We will talk more, I suppose, about the circumstances around Ephesus later on, but not, not today. But we will look at the special place in his heart he had for the church there and the people there who were part of it. Now it is a beautiful passage from from which we get perhaps the most intimate glimpses anywhere in, in scripture of the heart of this great apostle. We get to know a little bit more of his his character, his sacrificial labors, and his concern for those to whom he is ministering. More importantly, his charge towards those who are leading the church. It's interesting to know that this is the only extended speech in all of the book of Acts that Paul made to other Christians or fellow believers. All the other recorded speeches and sermons that he he gave are made to unbelievers, usually in the context of evangelism, preaching out to the crowds, or in the government halls as he's making a defence for his own, uh, for the gospel and of his own, he's making a defence of the fact that he's been in prison on his way to, to Rome. But here he's addressing church leaders. And there is another reason why these words are so important as it gives us an exhortation as to how we are to serve the Lord in the church. Both from the words that he's sharing with us and from the and as his life was an example to the rest. So what are some of the things that stand out for us as he spoke to these elders? First of all, let's talk about his attitude in verses seventeen to nineteen. But Paul said that from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe, severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. So Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem. This is his third, he's concluding his third missionary journey. 
He's in a hurry because he wants to, he, was, he wanted to make it back originally by Easter, the Passover, but that's not going to happen. So he's, he's trying to make it back now for Pentecost. But he's also, he also has a desire to, to meet the, church, the, the elders who were serving as, as leaders of the church at Ephesus one last time. And so, in order not to waste much time travelling there, he sends instructions to Ephesus from my leaders for the leaders to come and join him, to to come together at the port city of Miletus, about 50 miles from, from Ephesus. So they came and met Paul and gave them a strong exhortation about their ministry. Now, the elders in those days were the equivalent were equivalent to pastors, both in that day and, and today. They were responsible for, for leading the churches. In those ancient cities, they didn't have a, a specific place called a church or a building that they, that they met on a Sunday morning, first day of the week. They met in different homes. Some of these places uh, in in my recent wanderings around Turkey, in the ruins, particularly in Laodicea, there was one particular house. You can tell that it belonged to a rich person because it was quite a big, big place. And in that, you could, you could tell that, that they used it as a meeting place, but it belonged to, to somebody who was quite wealthy. And so there was a sign of a cross and all of that. So that was, they, they say, they concluded this is actually was a, a home church. And that's how the church expanded in so many of these these different places. For example, he once wrote to the Corinthians about the church at Ephesus, which met at the house of Aquila and Priscilla. And there were many other situations like that. So the teachers or leaders of these various house churches were the elders. They were responsible for these different fellowships. They were the ones responsible for guiding, directing, teaching and feeding the flock. But before he gets to the exhortation, he again finds himself in this uncomfortable situation, this position of having to to defend his own ministry. No pastor enjoys doing this. But the Apostle was constantly under attack and his ministry and reputation is constantly being maligned. This is the Apostle Paul we're talking about, okay? Think about it. What makes someone like me, this, me here, think that I'm I'm not going to be, you know, that's not going to happen to me either or any other pastor if this happened to the Apostle Paul? They say, you know the old saying, that a lie will go around the world while the truth is still putting on its boots. No doubt these elders, you know, they would have heard some of the false reports about Paul. They would have heard some of the things that they were saying about him in Ephesus. But this is why he's forced to clear the air and defend his ministry for his people. 
So he has to remind them that since the beginning, since he, he founded the church, he, he was the church founder, he served the Lord with humility and with tears. And he went through many difficulties because of the various plots of the Jews and other enemies of the gospel. And the words he using to defend himself were suggesting we, we are getting a glimpse of what he was accused of by his enemies that were suggesting that he was, he was proud, he was insincere, he was superficial and a troublemaker everywhere he went. You see, when people can't destroy your message, what do they do? They're going to try and malign your character in order to destroy your reputation. They're going to call you all sorts of names. You're racist. You hate. You hate the young people, you hate the old people. You hate the Asians, you hate the, the Africans, you know, you're a liberal, you're a conservative. They, they, they have to find a way to, to, to destroy your ministry. And the Apostle Paul, he lived in a time when mail used to take a while to, to travel, but the word of mouth, that travels pretty quickly. This day and age, you can imagine somebody watching online, they could be, you know, anywhere in the world. They could have a very different reputation of my ministry anywhere in Africa or I don't know, wherever they may be watching, thinking all these types of ideas. How on earth am I supposed to defend myself? And that's, that's something that Today we, we face, it's, it's a lot more intense right, than what used to happen in the times of the Apostle Paul. But even then, it was an issue already. And most of these elders, they, they would have been there right from the beginning when the Apostle Paul founded the church at Ephesus. They would have known of his ministry firsthand because he served at Ephesus for three years, three whole years. They knew of his methods, his passion to serve God. And why would, they, why would it be any different now? Because of the accusations that have come to the church. He hasn't changed. His message hasn't changed. He's the same. So now he, he explains how he went about his work. This is his method, verses 20 to 21. You know, he's saying, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And this is what Paul's method, wherever he went, Wherever he came into these cities, he would start at the, at the synagogue usually and from there, once the Jews and others found out that he wasn't, you know, he was following Jesus Christ, they would kick him out. He would go then and rent a hall. 
He always tried to teach them the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Now there's, you heard the saying, you might even being confronted yourself. That could be your truth, but this is my truth. How does that work? No. Anything but the truth is just an opinion. It could be your opinion, it could be my opinion, but there is such a thing as the truth. Two plus two equals four. It's not an opinion, it's a fact. And what he was declaring was not himself or his philosophies or his ideas, his ideas on life, but he was declaring the revealed truth about God. And he did this publicly, he did it personally. He wasn't selective as to his audience, oh, I'm just going to preach to the Jews or I'm just going to preach to the Greeks. I'm going to preach to, the, preach to the Africans, I'm going to preach to the Asians, the South Americans, whoever's going to hear me. I don't care. They all need to hear the truth. He wouldn't, and the other thing is that he wouldn't try to sweet talk his way into their lives to, to flatter them and, and try and sell them a dud with a false gospel. Sugar-coated. He didn't want them to be shortchanged in any way. No, preaching the gospel starts with the bad news that our sins have separated us from God. We must therefore turn to God in repentance and through faith receive the forgiveness in Jesus Christ who died for our sins. Great evangelist and preacher George Whitfield once said, Other men may preach the gospel better than I can, but no man can preach a better gospel. There is one gospel, right? So that's his method. So, what about his outlook? Verses 22 to 24. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news God's grace. What a great statement that is. What a great statement. Gee, I wish I could be so confident. (laughs) Um, Just note the, the great personal cost that ministry was to him. He knows he's facing he, on the one hand, he says, I don't know what's going to happen to me. On the, on the other hand, the Holy Spirit has revealed to him that he's facing danger, trial, hardship, affliction, blood, sweat and tears where he's heading. And he still wants to go. Because if I know that somewhere I'm going to go is going to be trouble, look, this is what's going to happen to you, Paul, this Paul. I'm not going to go. My family's not going to let me go. 
Right, and even the government might say, no, you know, we're not going to let you. There's no, you know, there's no travel insurance or anything because it's just, you're an idiot for going there. The Holy Spirit told him he was heading for trouble. So he knew what to expect, but just not the details. But I thought the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, is is there to make you happy, to make sure that you're safe and kept from all trouble, that you're comfortable, joyful, happy all the time. I thought that was the God's job, right? Isn't it? Oh, okay, maybe um, you need to go to another church, maybe. That's what they tell you, isn't it? No, he will suffer hardships, be in prison. And rather than complain that he has been abandoned by God, The Holy Spirit has already told him that as he goes there, he will be in the centre of God's will. That is his purpose. That is where God is sending him. Why is all this stuff happening to me? I don't know. Well, this is because God has allowed it to happen. This is, this is why. You are in the, in, in the centre. This is where God wants you to be. No, that's where you're supposed to be. So because of this, he was determined to go back and do what he had to do. And what was that exactly? Well, to complete the task that Jesus gave him, to finish the job. What a contrast to the individualistic emphasis so prevalent today. What a contrast, right? My goodness. Think about yourself, Paul. Think about it. You need to think more about yourself. Joel Osteen would say, your best life now. Meanwhile, the Apostle Paul says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. I'll I'll, I'll repeat that just in case it's flown by or you're thinking about the turkey you left in the oven. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race. To finish the race. He repeats that in other parts, doesn't he? To finish the race. We all know people who have started well, don't we? We all know people who have started well in the Christian life but just haven't persevered, pushed on to to the finish line. It usually happens for a number of reasons and a lot of excuses are offered. I've heard them all, trust me. I've offered them myself at times. Oh, I'm just not feeling well at the moment, you know going through issues. Yeah, uh, 
Sometimes it's just the pain of obedience, isn't it? Sometimes they haven't finished the race because they never really consider the cost of following Jesus. Sometimes people just give up from fatigue. They just don't see the payoff for all the sacrifice, all this hard work. And, you know, it's just not worth it. Many are not seeing the fruit for all the effort of following Jesus. And I think for many, I mean, this is real as well, it's, it's the, the false expectations that they were promised when they first believed. I think this is why it's so important to tell the whole truth when sharing the gospel. Whenever you're going to share the gospel with somebody, you need to tell them about the cost. Not just the cost. Yes, Jesus bore the cost for your salvation. But now you're called to give your life, right? To turn your life over to Jesus. And that could mean a whole lot of sacrifice as well. You need to, to, to understand the full gospel. For me, I don't want to, as, as a pastor, maybe I have other considerations. I need to think about the church budget. I need to, you know, I want to see have more bums on seats, right? Have the church full. So maybe I don't want to tell them the full story. I want a full church rather than give the full story. So I want more people to come. So I'll just hide the bad news somewhere else and let them find out for themselves. But that's not, you know, that's a salesman, isn't it? I need to tell you the truth because that, because one day I'm going to have to give account for that. That's why it's important to to understand the implications. When you put your hands to the plough, you don't look back. But you have decided to follow Jesus. You haven't decided to follow the pastor or anybody else. You're following Jesus wherever he called you. Then in verses 25 to 27, that is innocence. Now he says to them, now I know that none of, you, none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God, which is, confirms what we've just been saying. Right? He, so he says that this is the last time that they will see him. In other words, he has completed his face-to-face, one-on-one ministry to them. And then he declares that he's innocent of the blood of all of them. What an odd statement to make, right? Um, why would he use this language? Well, for one, because the gospel is a life or death Message. This is serious stuff. But he's also probably thinking about 
the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel where God declares through the prophet Ezekiel, he says in Ezekiel 33 verse 8, when I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die and you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways, that wicked person will die for their sin and I will hold you accountable for their blood. Wow. So what absolves the Apostle Paul from this guilt? That he has declared, as we have said, that he has declared the whole counsel of God. He hasn't kept anything back. Paul taught everything that they needed to know to be saved from their sins. He didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. He told them what they needed to hear. And as a messenger from God, he wasn't responsible for whether people liked it or not. He's just, you know, he's too boring. He's too excited. He's too angry. He's too happy. He's this or that. that, You know, he doesn't use enough illustrations. I don't know. He did he wasn't responsible for whether people liked it or not, whether they were offended by the message and whether they agreed with it or not. That wasn't a consideration. The important thing was whether they heard it, all of it. No, it was up to them to believe it and know the truth because there is now nothing further that the messenger can do. He is absolved. There's no blood on his hands. He has told them. They can't say we never heard. They can't say we never been told. They can't say we never had the opportunity. And finally, he, he gives them three considerations to govern them to the to the leaders in their ministry. So this is a message direct to the, to the leaders of, of the church. Verse 28, be watchful. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now here's an important um, mandate that is not always adhered to. Be on your guard for yourselves, says the uh, New American Standard Bible. Be on guard for yourselves. The implication is that leaders and pastors are accountable to God and to one another. Because a lack of accountability has resulted in many scandals and abuses that, uh, that have gone through the church and, and plagued the church over the years and in recent times. It's been all over the place just in church and parachurch ministries, there has to be an accountability here. But the primary, then he moves on from that, the primary responsibility of a pastor is to teach the scriptures, to feed the flock the unadulterated word of God. All the work within the church flows from that. And, and, and as you 
as the people exercise their gifts and talents within the church in caring and serving, they care and serve according to that which they have been taught from the scriptures. But if you don't feed the flock, someone else is sure to do it. And does it, that doesn't always work out too well, does it? I mean, those of you who have been parents, if you let your kids feed themselves, the pantry is full of lollies, chips, ice cream in the fridge. That's what they will have all day, morning, afternoon, dinner, next week, you know. And you just left them there for a month. Guess what's going to happen in a month's time, right? Their teeth will be rotten. They're going to be, you know, weigh 300 kilos. They've just been eating junk food the whole time. So how, how is it? How are they going to have a balanced diet? Right? They're laughing here because that's exactly their diet. I mean, that's... <laughs> And, and the Apostle Paul in another passage, he talks about, you know, you guys should be eating meat now, right? And yet you're still stuck on milk. According to the, the stage in your Christian walk, you have to be getting into the solid stuff, the, the nutritional, right? You can't be constantly just eating takeaway. And I love takeaway every now and then, surely. But it's going to, man. And just think of the implications spiritually. Because that's exactly, you look at the condition of the church today, it's exactly what is happening. You've got 1,500 channels that you can go in and watch anybody on television or whatever and just constantly, no, nah, I don't like that, I don't like that, I don't like that, oh, I like that. And you just constantly be, you know, finding someone that tickles your ears. That's takeaway food. What you need is the consistent diet, right, to help you to grow, to strengthen your faith. And in Paul's day, there wasn't access to a million podcasts and online sermons from multitude of sources. You don't like this pastor, you go to the next. But yet, this is all possible today with the click of a button, with the comfort of your own lounge. And yes, the availability of material, good material is great. I access these myself, listen to great preachers out there. But you have to know, you have to be very careful. You can, you can come and ask me later on, but there is also this abundance of terrible stuff that you need to stay away from because they distort the truth and it will lead you astray. And far more important than your physical condition, this food is important for your eternal life and your soul. So beware 
is the next part, verses 29 to 31. Verses 29 to 31 says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember, again, he points out, for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now, I know that some of you will be saying, Paul, you've just been warning us, you just did this whole series in, in Daniel and whatever, and every Sunday we're just hearing the same story about, you know, there's danger here, there's danger there, and all that. Well, this Apostle Paul was of three years, right? It's in tears. It's not like he, you know, he actually cared for the people. That's why he was warning them. I never stopped warning you. And he tells them to be aware of the dangers that are coming. He specifically mentions two, two sources of danger. The first are the dangerous people who will come from outside and settle among them. This is what Jesus said, Matthew 7.15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. This is where they're saying, the the wolves in sheep's clothing, right? Unregenerate men and women who come from outside, they appear friendly, they do all the right things, say all the right things, and they walk and talk like Christians and think they are Christians themselves. They will come into the church and be all nice and religious, but their ultimate aim is to disturb and ruin the church of God. As you can imagine, these sobering words have been fulfilled throughout the centuries many times over. The second danger are the wolves that will emerge from within, from within their own people. They could come from among the leaders, the pastors, elders themselves, or within the congregation. Suddenly somebody starts hearing something from something else and they, they get in the diet. Oh, but in that church, this is what they're doing. We should do that here. They bring them in. They start getting transformed. I was talking to a colleague of mine recently, somebody that I, I mentor, and a member of their church had been following the church for decades. They were part of the church even before he went there. Older guy. Now he doesn't believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he gets upset every time that the pastor mentions the Trinity. He says, no, 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 that's unbiblical. Where is the Trinity mentioned in the Bible? And so, bang, he goes after the pastor and the church had to make a decision. So, man, this, and starts spreading the stuff throughout the church. It's 
It's truly sad when this stuff happens. And it's rife in the church today and, and, the, and the signs are there and maybe originally the intentions are good. But the warning signs, you, you should listen to some of the warning signs when stuff like this happens. How can we, for example, how can we make the gospel more attractive to today's generation? That has to ring a bell, right? How can we make it less offensive and more acceptable to unbelievers? What are some of the beliefs that are in the Bible but they're not as relevant in our modern age? Because you see, once godly men and women start compromising the truth, they cannot help but start sharing that stuff. Look what I've discovered with other people. At first, the distortions are subtle, almost imperceptible to the untrained ear. But slowly but surely, you turn up one Sunday and they're off, they're off on another playing all together. This is why we must be on our guard. Be hopeful. The last thing. Be hopeful. Verse 32. Now I commit to you God, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He's about to leave them because he is convinced that he will never see them again. Tough times will emerge in the future, in the future of the church. And by the time that Timothy gets there, that we're going to be looking at in the next few Sundays, by the time that Timothy gets there, he already faces many problems. And the Apostle's prophetic words that wolves will come in and cause havoc were spot on. That's exactly what happened. Maybe some even considered blaming the Apostle Paul for their present troubles, but they can't because he has already given them the whole counsel of God. He says, I'm innocent of any man's blood. So now, like a a father saying goodbye to his child as they move out of home, he gives them words of advice and and, and commits them to God's care. But it's also doubly important that he commits them to the word of God. He says, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. Nothing will sustain them like God's word, which is useful for what? For teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. It's the ultimate fact checker, the scriptures. The only way they will be able to discern false teaching from truth It is the only way that they will be able to get built up, be nourished, be strong. It is the only way that they will have hope in the midst of all the trials that are heading their way. 
It's the only way that they'll be able to persevere to the end and finish the race. Awaiting them and all who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour is the glorious inheritance of eternal life. Meanwhile, for all of us, I think we can, we can choose to focus on our troubles and our personal circumstances and, 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 and just become even more anxious than what we already are and, and, and just have this hopeless outlook. But no. We focus on our glorious salvation and the inheritance that comes with it. We focus on the God who has freed us from our sins and given us the hope that the world will never know unless they surrender to Jesus Christ. The hope that we will finish the race. We're not going to quit halfway or three quarters. We will not give up because God is with us. Amen. Amen.